Hello, everybody, and welcome to Scholars at Play, a podcast dedicated to the critical discussion of video games and their place in society and the academy. My name is Derek Price, and I am joined, of course, by Terrell Taylor. Hello. But today, not Kyle Romero. Let's have a dun, moment. Dun, dun, dun. What happened to him? Find out. <laughs> not during this episode. No, uh, Kyle's not with us today, but I'm really excited to have uh, two, two uh, new co-hosts. Um, I'm joined today by Curtis Mon. How you doing? Yeah, and I'm joined by Pablo Abend. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, awesome. So we got uh, we have two new guests today. Um, so this this weekend we had a uh, graduate student conference that we put on as the German Graduate Student Association. It was called the Aesthetics of Surveillance: German Perspectives, and uh, we had the three of us. Well, the four of us all were involved with a panel uh, about games. Um, we all sort of did some presentations and talked through that stuff and it was such a like a really great panel and like there were so many interesting points of 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 ten- not tension necessarily but but intersection between our papers and we all sort of came at things in such different ways that we thought it would be kind of cool to just I don't know sit down and talk through it so this is going to be a little bit more of a casual episode of scholars of play we don't really have um, any sort of theoretical texts except the ones we've created uh, to talk through today but um, I was wondering if you guys would just sort of quickly I mean people have heard Terrell and I talk at length. Uh, Too much. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, get ready for some more. Uh, but to start, I wanted to sort of get, uh, int- let Curtis and, and Pablo introduce themselves a little bit and sort of let us know, like, what's their connection to gaming? Um, what, you know, what are they, where are they working? What are they doing? What kind of research? What kind of questions and things interest them uh, about games? And uh, I'm just going to let Curtis kick it off. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually a colleague of, of Derek's. Uh, I'm part of the German department at Vanderbilt. Right now, though, I'm on a leave of absence and working at the Cologne Game Lab, uh, which is part of the University of Applied Sciences of Cologne. Um, and that's, I guess, my most so everyday kind of immediate connection to games. I'm the program manager there. Uh, we have a program in game development and research. So we have students working in teams, actually developing games, but also studying games, um, as the name suggests. So it's it's a great place to work. Yeah. Um, and just being around these students and, and just beholding, you know, what these yeah. students create in one semester uh, af- after the next. It's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really inspiring place to cool to be. And while I'm there, of course, I get to further my research and my dissertation, uh, which deals with a figure uh, that I call the digital flaneur. Um, and that's a that's a term that uh, I've seen floating around on the internet. So I don't want to. Claim it just as, as as my own. I mean, I, I think he's uh, <laughs> Curtis Mon, first yeah. person to say it ever. No, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is I. I want to use this figure to understand uh, control and 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 basically exploring openness and and different modes of play uh, that kind of push up against or maybe even work around uh, the rules. So yeah, that's that's the digital flaneur and. Cool. Uh, and how he encounters with surveillance uh, yeah. is what I presented on at the conference we just had. Awesome. Yeah. Pablo, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm scientific coordinator uh, at a small university in Germany, University of Siegen, um, at a graduate school called Locating Media. And um, yeah, I'm a, also a game studies scholar, I would say. Um, I think, yeah, I think you can say that. For I can sure. say that, I guess. <laughs> um, before before I started as a scientific coordinator, I, I worked at a, a game studies project um, concerned with modding practices 
um, it was called modding uh, and editor games in mediatized worlds mm-hmm. uh, at the University of Siegen, uh, of, of Cologne, before I went to Siegen. So I looked at uh, communities, gaming communities, how they change games and how innovation processes work uh, this way. And this is actually what I want to pursue and do more in the future. Um, as a coordinator, I have a little time to do my own research, and uh, oh, man. I have to write the okay. second book. Oh, um, yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, I have to write the second book, um, and I want to do it about, I want to go deeper in the industry and want to do a, um, an ethnography um, in the game industry. So it, it would be probably production studies, you could say. Um, also interested in innovation processes and how user feedback feeds ba- or feeds back or user actions feedback into innovation of new yeah. games, new titles. And so right now I'm trying to get contacts there and, you know, talk to people and yeah. get in there. So. Yeah, that sounds like really cool stuff. Um, so that's uh, so what we want to do here is just start by um, wor- like generally quickly introducing to you what our papers were about and sort of give you a sense of uh, you know what what uh, the, the the central sort of like uh, you know the central argument that we were trying to put forward with our papers just so that you listeners have a little bit of an idea of where we're coming from from yesterday. Um, I'll start because I'm already talking. Uh, sorry, Terrell, you're going to have to just listen for a little while. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's happy. He's good. All right, cool. Um, so I, I worked on a, I presented on a game called Orwell. It's a game that was developed by Osmotic Studios. Came out just last year, um, twenty ended end of the year 2016 in November. October, November, it was a, it's an episodic game. And it's essentially a game that places you in the position of the surveiller. So you're you're a um, you're not a high up person, but you are a government contractor employee who is sort of tasked with operating the surveillance system. And uh, the game sort of has a dramatic it's sort of dramatic beginning and a sort of opening cinematic. There's this sort of attack. There's this terrorist attack on this like vague public space. All of the names of everything is like. It's The Nation and Freedom Plaza and all of these really, like, Orwell-sounding words for any... Like, The the Party is the political party that came to rise in the last few years. All of, it's, it's sort of shot through with these um, references, which sometimes are terrible to, uh, to Orwell, the, the novel. But, um, you yeah, you're basically tasked with trying to f- find out who committed this terrorist attack. You sort of work through the, the surveillance software... Um, the, the game, all of the action in the game occurs within the frame of this sort of fake surveillance program called Orwell. And you're basically sort of browsing through all sorts of, like, they, they, they create all sorts of, like, fake Facebook, which is called Timelines. And then they have bank accounts and they have um, medical records and all sorts of, like, varying degrees of personal, uh, you know, sort of private levels of privacy all the way down to sort of, like, Locational data for cell phones and files on your own home computer. Uh, you're looking for for things that the game calls data chunks, and these data chunks are um, you know pictures and text. And you're just supposed to sort of use those data chunks to figure out if any of the the members of this this activist political group that you're surveilling um, called Thought 
was involved with this terrorist attack and who who committed it and which people were involved and which people were not. And there's all sorts of twists and turns and it tells like a really actually I would I don't think this came through in my paper. It is a really good story that they tell. Like the writing is actually quite good and you really do get a sense that these characters are, you know, even through these just data chunks, you do get a sense that they're they're sort of human they they have that human feel. Okay, before I get into too dubious territory <laughs> with like uh, immediacy and immediacy and humanness, um, I'll say just quickly my argument, which was that um, that that really good story that they do tell uh, in on my reading, sort of, yeah, I mean, to uncover it, you basically have to surveil them. And the more surveilling that you do, the more data chunks that you upload, the more you're sort of rewarded with, um, more information about these people, and you 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 really dig deeply into their lives, often in ways that are superfluous and not necessary for figuring out who done it, but um, are interesting. And uh, so, f- when I played through it, I sort of tried to upload as little as possible, and I had a kind of unsatisfying end experience because I didn't know a lot about uh, many of the characters. Where I I've, I was sort of getting screenshots from someone's online playthrough. And they were just uploading everything they found. Like they would just go, oh, cool, let's look at this, let's look at this. And then they found new documents and they found all of these plot points that I totally missed because I was trying to be, oh, I'm not going to surveil these people too much. I'm going to try and resist. Um, But ultimately, I feel like the game just doesn't allow you the freedom to sort of navigate the game space and take the kinds of actions like the ones that I wanted to take, which was to say, I'm not going to surveil it quite as much, you know? So for me, there's a clash there just between. Uh, like the story being prioritized over player freedom. I think that's maybe the simplest way to sum up my argument. Um, that's enough for me. Who wants to go next? Pablo, you want to tell us a little bit about your paper? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so my paper was not about a, a specific game. Um, it was more concerned with the gaming hardware, the hardware side of it. So I called it um, the quantified gamer, um, coded objects, and cas- the casualness of surveillance. So. I looked at different gaming hardware and how this gaming hardware can be used to collect data while people play games. So um, I looked at the Kinect. Um, I did a scan with the Kinect and showed that. Um, I looked at mobile games and how they are developed by like you know, the case of Ingress, which uh, collected a lot of data while people played with it. So it could this data could be used for the next game, Pokemon Go, obviously. So um, I looked at this uh, this stuff and I looked how we as media scholars can kind of open up the black box of the technology in order to get a sense of how this data is connected and more important, probably, where the data flows after it is collected. So I did the Kinect scan and I did with a monitor app, I tried to capture while I was playing Pokemon Go in the city of Cologne, um, where what kind of data is in the background, like where the data flows. So, and I showed that. And well, my argument, if you want to put it, was at, at the end, um, or my conclusion was basically a methodological thing, right? So we we need to open the black box. We need tools, and this can only be done with a more interdisciplinary work, like when media scholars work with maybe people from the information sciences or something like that. So in 
that's actually what we're doing, trying to do in Segan. That's cool. Well. Like work with people who develop digital methods and yeah. you know who can visualize actually, or who, who make tools that can visualize these data flows. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. I used the Friedrich Kittler quote there. You sure did. Who uh, yeah, <laughs> who said like we can have all these gadgets all we want, but you know what we lack is information on information. So yeah, we don't really know where the information that is collected flows, mm -hmm. basically. And of course, I mean, these are casual forms of surveillance. And I guess we all, when, when we try to criticize it, it's, it gets hard to criticize these forms because they're not, they don't fit into our model of like, you know, hierarchical control or something like that, because we use them on ourselves, on our bodies. I talked briefly about the quantified self movement, you know, they're using the sensors very, you know, voluntarily, basically surveilling themselves. Mm -hmm. So this was another case I, I showed there. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Oh, no. yeah, maybe just uh, one more sentence because I I try to bring uh, because I did my PhD on cartography and digital cartography, so it, it it was a good the conference was a good opportunity to bring those two research uh, interests like the how cartography changes and uh, locational media um, and game studies together. So. Yeah. I think the I think the Pokemon Go and like showing where that data goes. I mean, I think that Pokemon Go example that you had at the end just brought all of those things together really well. Like mm, it's like mm, the, the gamification mm, of local lo like uh, locating technologies and and all that stuff. I think it was yeah a really cool like example. Maybe we'll talk about it. Well, thanks. Yeah, Good. yeah, Curtis. What you right, got? Yeah. So um, at the center of my paper is a comparison of uh, both Watchdog uh, titles, um, the Ubisoft. Uh, produced games uh, from 2014, the first Watch Dogs, and 2016, late last year, Watch Dogs 2. Um, and I looked at these games, and I, and I, you know, Derek, you did this as well, I think, um, to, to kind of demonstrate that games are particularly interesting for the field of surveillance studies because they can, on a thematic level, address surveillance. On a level of gameplay, they can kind of make us do surveillance or enact uh, surveillance kind of uh, systems uh, and processes. And of course, these games themselves are tools of surveillance, right? In, in, yeah. in so far as that our gameplay data is being, right, kind of watched um, and, and, and processed and recorded and, and then uh, our behaviors naturally then um, analyzed. And uh, yeah, uh, on these three kind of levels, these these games involve surveillance. And I guess the way the digital flaneur kind of works into this um, and as, as an embodiment of, yeah, more open modes of play, modes of play concerned with exploration um, and kind of a playful repurposing of technology, you can actually use surveillance in the game to, to just have fun and explore the world, right? Um, and I think that's where, where uh, the addition and kind of kind of more playful modes of bringing in surveillance into the second watchdogs actually enables uh, the digital flaneur, right, to kind of enjoy the space in, in, in new and kind of fun ways. And, and doing surveillance in that moment is actually something, uh, yeah, that shows how, how, how the openness and uh, kind of the, the contingency of, of, of the human element in play um, kind of breaks down these structures of surveillance. And, and you know, it's actually impossible playing that game to actually conduct so 
true uh, like a true system of surveillance, right? Because you just you're in this massive open world, mm -hmm. right? And so it, it's really what you're doing is playfully watching mm -hmm. those this kind of environment around you. Um, yeah, and so that the second game in bringing in drone technology, right, and and kind of opening up a transmedia space that you can access from within the game uh, itself, uh, where then you have uh, you know an online portal. Uh, where there's a blog written by one of the right. the, the DeadSec hackers. Uh, that that's so DeadSec is this group of this hacker group that you're involved in in, in the second game. They're a peripheral part of the first game, um, but when you when you go to the to their blog, you read about events that are you know taking place in I guess the diegetic story space, right? Right. Uh, but you also can watch videos that warn us of some of the of these devices, right? Uh, in, uh, that can also spy on us in in our lives. And of course, we're learning about all of this. We're being enlightened to, the, uh, yeah, the, the kind of surveillance potential of all of this technology that we surround ourselves with. We're learning about this through one of these devices, and uh, I think it's I think it's a really clever and uh, self-reflexive uh, kind of humor on uh, on the part of Ubisoft. Yeah. Um, and you see this in a lot of their games. Uh, they're kind of aware of their role in all this, and um, I think with that transmedia space and the way they confront the player. Uh, with this massive matrix of of um, kind of power based, you know, uh, relationships involving surveillance, they at least have the player thinking about this, you know, thinking yeah. about their role within the system, um, and I think that that's maybe one of the you know most powerful statements about surveillance that I've seen uh, in, in in a game, um, and it speaks, I think, much more strongly than than anything that happens in the narrative in Watch Dogs, uh, in either game. Sure. Yeah. Pablo. Uh, this is really interesting because, I mean, um, Garrett, your game, that's an indie game, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Would you call it a serious game? Does it want it, wants it mm. I mean, is it like designed to teach you about surveillance and kind of a, has this approach so, you know, you get reflexive about it or... That's this is a, this is I mean this is very similar to a question that the that um, our keynote um, William Staples came up and asked us asked me at the end of the panel which was like is this game trying to teach you something or what does this game does this game have the goal of being pedagogical is it trying and, and that like part of serious games being like we're going to address a serious issue this isn't for fun this is to make a point or something like that and I think that. I started off my part of my paper with this quote in the game where it talks about um, there's just like a there's a comp text chat that you can find between two of the characters and they're basically talking about like what it is what is necessary for surveillance to be understood like we got to have firsthand experience of it hmm. and this really sort of strong statement like you really just need to feel it and like experience it for yourself and then of course this game exists which in my paper, I read as an implicit argument for the fact that games can give us this. One could also take it as a self-critical sort of gesture of the game saying, yeah, well, if you think about it, we're a medium too, so this can't even really give you what you're looking for. That would have ruined my ability to write a paper if I had to <laughs> pursued that direction for a while. But to get to, to get to your question about the serious thing, I think that, um, I think that, it really wants to tell a good story. Hmm. And I think that this is ultimately, I think this is ultimately what it ends up doing. And whether or not, I think it it wants to have, it has a range of characters with all sorts of different attitudes towards surveillance, who maybe those characters want to people to think critically about it. 
But what ends up happening, I feel, is that, you know, it's just like it wants to tell its story first and foremost. Yeah. You know, I was really interested. So I played through the demo of Orwell sure. and I was, you know, it's it's kind of a frustrating experience, right? As, as you're as you're moving through this this interface, you're constantly being reminded by your supervisor. And I don't know if the supervisor even has a name, but he, he just kind of pops in. He's clearly watching what you're doing, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, and I, I think it's it's a kind of nice, you know, reflexive move saying you're you're in you're in a, a game space, your moves are being watched, of course. I mean this is an interactive medium. Uh, and the way that that basic that this kind of basic back and forth between player and and code, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, exists for all games is is now the kind of thematized as a, as a central uh, point and, and and mechanic in in Orwell, right? Yeah, every move really you're, you're you're made is what, every move you make is watched, and uh, the machine reminds you of yeah. this, right? This this network reminds you of that, right? Why did you put that data junk there? Why put it here instead, right? And so, in that way, I think it it kind of is doing surveillance at that point. It's kind of making you realize, okay, what do I have to do to fit into this surveillance, or actually. I have to. This is what I have to do to fit into this system. It's telling me exactly that, right? And I think this goes back to your point about about you know freedom and, and the way the narrative is is told. In that way, this is a you know great game to just talk about that the bigger you know question of how do you tell you tell a story in, in an interactive medium, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I I had uh, I had several thoughts, but now they're all sort of failing me. Terrell, do you want to like jump in here with anything? Um. Sure. So um, my role in, in, in all of this brilliant um, discussion of surveillance and gaming uh, was to simply moderate and introduce everybody and read the kind of bios they gave me. <laughs> um, and I guess briefly prompt some, some thoughts for the Q&A with um, some sort of summary um, or um, <clears throat> thinking about themes that ran through them all. And it wasn't until afterwards when I think we all went out to dinner that the real, I think, thing that's running through everybody's um, paper kind of came through to me, which is a kind of um, an anti-critical gesture, I think, in each of your papers, uh, in that rather than uh, here's a game, um, and here's a theory, and here's how the theory kind of explains or wrenches out the game, and coming back to the kind of symbol themes that we come over again, over and over, um, in critical discussions of surveillance, Really what's going on is thinking about surveillance um, in ways that don't typically reassert the top-down story of big data, big brother, so on and so forth, um, always watching. I mean, Curtis, particularly with your, um, with your paper and thinking through it now, um, this idea of the digital flaneur um, got me thinking to some conversations, well, let me say non-conversations uh, in literary studies because I don't think that they're happening because they're happening in um, two different uh, canons of sorts. But the flaneur coming from Baudelaire, being a sort of outsider figure, being able to observe in so many different ways, initially strikes me as not that different from what some might call in American literature the picaresque figure Mm -hmm. uh, that we might associate with uh, Huckleberry Finn and the way that he's sort of moving through society and making some observations uh, based on America. The critical difference, I think, and this is what your observation about the digital flaneur is pointing out, is that at the end of the day, um, Huckleberry Finn is a novel that makes moral statements about America and society. 
such that uh, every observation Huck makes is a question of, well, this is the value of this particular person and this is how uh, their ways of moving through the world are particularly problematic. Whereas the flaneur has a certain level of contingency being exposed such that the immediate rush to a conclusion, this is good or this is bad, you know, that, that ruins the kind of spontaneity of what the digital flaneur, uh, I think, is ultimately about. Uh, Derek, I think your paper is kind of on the opposite end of that, um, such that once you kind of adopt the sort of uh, position of power and you get concerned with these ethical questions of to survey or not survey, uh, what you're missing is precisely what happens when you do survey to a certain degree and when you do sort of commit to that system is that, well, now you've kind of entered this space of all these different possibilities and these interesting stories. And, you know, you called it narrative to a certain degree. But I'm wondering, is there really a plot arc or is this really just fascinating um, exposure and inquiry into some of these characters that has a value in and of itself and that sort of moves past the kind of narrative of surveillance, which is we need the surveyor uh, to protect an order that is constantly being threatened by a type of contingency. Uh, and you know, Pablo, obviously, is sort of ways that you're kind of thinking about um, the, the sort of quantified um, gamer movement or the quantified self movement as a way of observing uh, oneself is, you know, well, how do we th sort of think about that as surveillance in the typical sense? Whereas hmm. the hierarchy, uh, I suppose the thing that kind of keeps coming back to me is the terms for which you understand yourself and the terms for which you define yourself are now being decided by what these technologies have the capacity to measure. That hmm. the sort of ability to put a number on it is now, oh, well, you know, what is, how many times have I, have I stood up in the past hour? Hmm. As what my Apple Watch, I, I don't have an Apple Watch. I have a friend who has an Apple Watch, and she's always talking about how she didn't meet her stand goal. And now herself is now <laughs> defined. Oh, well, I didn't meet my stand goal. That means I'm lazy. I'm sitting down too much. I met my walk goal, but not the stand goal. So yeah. the ways that those kind of become a way to define the self, uh, even if it's by your own volition, the terms and the vocabulary for doing so is something that is not in your control. But, you know, but some interesting ways in which we're kind of resisting the typical ordinary critical impulse. Yeah. But, do either of you guys, I mean, do I, Pablo or Curtis, well, do you want to? I mean, first of all, thank you for yeah. a wonderful <laughs> summary of the digital yeah. flaneur. That was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I, when I think about this figure, I mean, as, as I said at the conference, this is an embodiment of, of actually several elements. You know, it's it's the player enacting this moment. It's the, de it's the designer kind of opening up the space to allow for a flaneur. Um, and it's the technology, right? It's it's it, this this digital flaneur is afforded by the medium, right? Uh, and open world games are great a great place to actually explore this. I mean, just on a on a kind of superficial level, that you have this this figure, you're on the outside, the NPCs are all kind of, you know, this the system that you're kind of observing. You're ta you were taking a step back, and you're kind of yeah, you're 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 the outsider, the the observer, um, and in that role, it, you're you're already kind of, I think, moving or you're at least close to this this space where you might, you know, just kind of watch, just look at your surroundings. Um, and what, uh, Jennifer Woodson, who's, who writes about surveillance and, 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 and gaming, she's a fantastic scholar. She calls the, the watching that we do in games attent attentive watchfulness, right? That, that's, that's what's going on when we're playing games. And that's, that's what the flaneur is all about. Um, the point I made with the flaneur at the conference that maybe we should bring up now is that I look at his gaze as kind of a subversion, right, of Bentham's panopticon, or the gaze in Bentham's uh, panopticon, right? The, the the gaze of the guard is right. It's it's concealed. It's kind of, it's it's imagined. It's kind of internalized, right? It's systematic, and the flaneurs is out in the open. It's exposed. It's haphazard, right? Um, and it's 
not trying to enforce some sort of system on everything that's happening around this figure, right? It's just trying, you know, this figure is trying to find the beautiful in the quotidian. And if he can turn around and redeem that, that, that moment uh, later by writing about it, um, or maybe taking, a, you know, a selfie, a, a, or doing a screenshot. A, yeah, yeah, or <laughs> live streaming it. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, that, that, that you could, you know, uh, yeah, redeem that, that, that ephemeral, you know, moment of, of experience in the urban setting or, you know, gameplay. I mean, what, what is gameplay? It's, it's this kind of ephemeral, you know, th- this, this, this moment, right? That, 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 you know, when you, as soon as you live stream it, it's not really gameplay, right? Sure. I mean, the person who's watching that is is yeah. is, is a viewer. There, there's no interactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, trying to, to to get at what that is, this this you know, in, in, in gameplay, I think the the flaneur is kind of pushing us in in that direction. And and I, I like though um, I will stick by my live streaming thing though because <laughs> a game that I just cannot wait to play, uh, Breath of the Wild. Uh, I've been watching, like on Twitter, all of these clips of people doing these amazing things, and I, I don't like. I don't want to make too strong of an analogy, flaneur to writing, and like digital flaneur to sort of screenshots or, or or screen capture. Right. But there is something kind of beautiful or fascinating about uh, experiencing that game. I'm sort of like the 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 screen share is the beautiful object, like, oh my God, all those things came together all at once. Uh, and for me, it's something that I really enjoy looking at. Uh, and it's, it's this little memento, this little sort of ossification of that that happening, uh, that sort of active process of gameplay. Yeah. Pablo, you've got a, uh, a look. I, I got a look, but I don't, uh, I don't know how to tie in now. Um, my thoughts I just said about the quantified self, so yeah. I might just not tie no. them in and no, that's okay. just talk about the quantified self anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> but, I... Well, I mean, it, the quantified self movement, and I went to the meetups they have in several cities where they just gather and show their gadgets and their Apple Watches and show, the, show their interfaces they just made and, you know, kind of experiment with data collection. And they experiment with correlations. So this is kind of interesting. So people start tinkering with these technologies. And so it, 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 for me, it's nice to see or it, it shows how complicated this is, this surveillance issue on it. You can't just really say, I mean, it's, it's um, I don't know, they, it, it can be an empowering practice all of a sudden, right, to surveil yourself for somebody with an illness um, it's really good to like track your, you know, your medication when do you have to take it, and you know, and, and stuff like that. So it can be at the same time empowering, and at the same time it can be like, uh, well, what's the what would be the a, difference of disempowering, empower- right? disempowering, I mean, sort of, yeah, or oppressive, <laughs> oppressive, yeah. oppressive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it can be oppressive, and yeah. and I guess that's a matter of data how the data is used and where it, if it stays with you or not and how much control you have over the data mm-hmm. and it's a question of agency like you know do you give up agency by surveilling yourself um, how, how much control do you have over it so I don't know um, this is uh, I guess with a panopticon I mean it's not a panopticon you're you're creating you could say you could create your own panopticon but then you may change place, become your own guard or something like that. I don't know <laughs> yeah. how to put it. It's, it's, yeah. I guess it shows like how messy this, this is. 
So I think that actually, I mean, this this question of the panopticon, which which Curtis brought up and which you, you've mentioned again, is uh, something we should talk about, which was another tension that I felt was sort of latent in, throughout the conference, was this question of how to understand how power is functioning in modern surveillance. And our, our speaker had a very sort of Foucauldian perspective on this. Um, for those of you who may not be familiar with Foucault, he's now a recurring guest uh, as a ghost on our podcast for two episodes <laughs> in a row. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I won't belabor the point, but um, like Curtis was describing, this sort of centralized um, sort of uh, tower in the middle of a, a sort of block of cells or something like that, um, a hidden power that can't be seen. Um, this is one sort of mode of power. And Terrell, you had a really good point last night about the different kinds of power, that sort of sovereign power example um, with police. So like police mm-hmm. brutality and like how right. public that is. Right. So this is in, in many ways kind of a, a, a sort of reference to our last episode uh, episode three, when we were talking about the sort of control society versus a disciplinary society right. uh, with respect to kind of a dispute between uh, Foucault uh, and Deleuze, another guest who I'm sure will come back. Uh, and I think this is um, this is something that um, we'll probably talk a little bit more, hopefully, later if we get a chance to revisit our episode on um, uh, Civ Five. But it's interesting to consider how particularly, and I'll, I'll just stick with the Delu- um, the Foucault, excuse me, example for now, that for as much discussion of disciplinary power and how disciplinary power is the sort of main way we see power functioning in um, modern society, if we can sort of say that, that instances of police brutality, instances of what some might call gratuitous violence um, and the instances of anti-blackness and perhaps racism writ large don't seem to function that way. Mm-hmm. It is not a matter of, well, for after all, for, for Foucault, the good use of a police force is when you do not have to have a police at every single corner where the subjects have now become uh, their own police. They are policing themselves, that there are sort of roles in which they're sort of in sort of um, internalize those disciplinary orders, disciplinary structures, such that they are monitoring themselves. You don't have to worry about the police at every sort of block. But that's not what we see in the instances of police brutality. There is a need for a police officer to enact a kind of violence that is precisely the kind of thing, not in the same sense, perhaps, not in the same sort of um, imagery, but what Foucault talks about in the very opening to uh, discipline and punish, the kind of need for a sovereign to execute and to sort of show that off uh, and sort of a public display as a way to repress. And it's interesting that the notion of repression uh, through spectacles of violence is something that many scholars and critics talk about. Yeah. So I think I think this, this idea, this sort of older, maybe pre-modern sense of sovereign power, power on display, very embodied, very present, very like visu- visible. And then moving to, I mean, again, we're moving through Foucault's thought here, but his idea of disciplinary thought, uh, uh, disciplinary power, and then, of course, control society with this sort of infinitely modular, variable form of power. I think these three constructions are maybe shot through, were, were shot through, I think, a lot of our discussions of surveillance throughout the conference. I, I, obviously, there's we're not going to come to a, a, a sort of <laughs> final agreement about which one best describes modern uh, surveillance now, but I, I wonder if you guys had any thoughts about how that how those kinds of how power is functioning in 
in your things, and uh, if you, if any of that made do you think anything at all? That's also totally. Uh, it, you know, with the, with the transmedia space, I was talking about for Watchdogs too, and and just just to kind of clarify, um, there's there's an online portal uh, that's actually the Ubisoft community, but it's kind of dressed up as and, and kind of blurs. Uh, into the DedSec community, and that's, that's the hacker community at, at, at the heart of the narrative in Watch Dogs 2. The, the existence of that and, and the, way that, uh, the way that the player can, can kind of interact with this community, can uh, share screenshots, can live stream, can chat with others, can cooperate and, and, and collaborate and communicate with can you, others. Can you purchase upgrades or anything through that? That's there. And, and, and yeah, and so you could, you could purchase a, a downloadable content or, or like yeah. Costume, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not, it's not kind of forced on you. Right? Sure, sure, it's, sure. It's, it's not that present. So that was yeah. something that really kind of surprised me that this is really kind of an, an, an open, it's, it's, it's a platform for community building in a way yeah. of, of, of gamer community. Yeah. Um, but when, when you actually look at that, what's happening there, that players are t- kind of asserting their own agency and, and, you know, deciding to share, you know, screenshots and and be a part of this. Uh, all the while, Ubisoft, through DedSec, is kind of reminding them, look at look at all these devices in your life that actually are, you know, spying on you. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that the players confronted with, with this reality, it kind of, for a moment, uh, at least for me, caused me to reflect on you know all the different yeah all, all the different power struggles here right mm-hmm. what's the what's the honest game designer doing with this platform obviously this person is expanding and and kind of strengthening and and enriching and enriching the, the play experience for the for the gamer um, all the data that's being gleaned from this and and who's actually you know buying this data it's I mean it's not just Ubisoft right so um, and all the different communities of, of players there. I mean, this is this is a, a massive uh, and kind of yeah super complex uh, mix of of power relationships actually, uh, and I think it's really well uh, kind of realized, and and in a really uh, and also in a self kind of reflexive way. Uh, hilarious, right? I yeah, mean, they, they, sure. Ubisoft knows that all this like, and uh, and they're communicating this through one of these devices that they say are out of control, right? Right. Yeah. It's so like I'm throwing a very brief aside, very brief. Um, just a maybe an f- interesting thing Foucault does at the very end of the chapter on panopticism within Discipline and Punish is he says, if there is a way to reverse the panopticon or to offer channels to reverse it such that the gaze can go from person at the top of the tower to the person, people in the cells, to who's in the tower, that that would begin to start to offer some possibility of easing those sort of forms of power. And I'm wondering if this capacity of surveillance on behalf of uh, the, the sort of designers to take in that sort of data um, and revise, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm not 100% sure that that achieves what Foucault was talking about, but it, there's, there's possibility there. I mean, is, isn't, that, isn't that idea about transparency? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. I think that's something that, that we can have a conversation with, 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 these, with these game developers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can have an informed one. Because as, as gamers, we're all very close to the surveillance te- technology, and we all know the the surveillance potential of this technology. I mean, it's, you know, so this the chance to actually change the way uh, this you know player to to game player to game developer uh, relationship operates. I mean, it's there that there, there's a real opportunity for for more transparency. And I, I see, for example, when you go to the, the the Google Play Store, that they've now actually instituted a system of 
icons to cue you into what sort, like the ways in which your data is going to be used. And this is this is like a gamified way of an attempt, you know, to move towards transparency. I'm not saying that it's perfect, but it's. I think it demonstrates that this conversation is is happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think your point, kind of, that that if we could turn this the, the gaze around, yeah, this this could happen, and maybe through transparent through transparency, through a conversation, an open conversation with, with the gaming public. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> n- no problem. Um, well, I think, well, in, in the game industry, this might be the case when we talk about, like, bigger in, or, or in national institutions. I think we, we hit, a, like, a glass wall here or something. I mean, and I think, the like you, you mentioned, like, the the many ways and um, the many devices through which data is connected and the many uh, windows that get opened. I think the panopticon might be a little, as a metaphor, might be a little overused or I don't know if we can still use it because, I mean, it seems to, there's a deflation going on away from this one holistic approach so that this one guard can overlook everything uh, to well, what our keynote speaker called the, the, the tiny brothers. So we have a from lot of brother. windows. Of, yeah. Hmm? Yeah. From big brother to oh, tiny yeah. brothers. From right? big brother to tiny brothers. So what is happening is there's a deflation of this hierarchical order with one guard overlooking everything. Um, so to the many windows that open to the many, I don't know, data that is collected in many, many ways. Um, so Latour calls these oligopticons, uh, no, oligopticons. Mm-hmm. So it's not a panopticon anymore, but many, many oligopticons. Um, he uses Google Earth kind of a, as a, an example, like all the different views, all the different layers you can turn on to get different, you know, uh, richer information on certain spots. So, um, yeah, so this was just what I wanted, my 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 thoughts about this panopticon and how it might change or might have changed yeah absolutely the idea of the panopticon yeah this is where i don't even i don't even know if i like the tiny brothers thing right mm-hmm. like i i wonder if if the if if deleuze's idea of control society with the scanning gets us further where we're looking across not oh, in yeah. depth yeah. and that and yeah. it's and like the metaphor of a scanner literally that technology that we used to, with paper um where it's just across the very top, and it's not there's no there's no penetration or, or sort of digging down deeply. Um, if that isn't sort of the yeah, if we want to speak of many different kinds of power, if that's not still the most important and more significant new way that surveillance has transformed, mm-hmm. I don't know. I would want to make that case, and I I feel yeah, like seventy five percent okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but maybe data collection is distributed, but maybe the idea, now that I think about it, it's more like the collection of data is distribu- distributed, but the observer, I mean, with yeah. the re- revelations of Snowden, and you know, sure. they have those data centers where, they, where it all comes together, so we have a very centralized yeah, um, centralized place where everything ends up. Storage. <laughs> so storage, storage, or like, right? uh, yeah, di- like the database where those things exist. Mm-hmm. That's not in any way decentralized, right? That's really. And then we have we have achieved a certain transparency about things, but does that change anything? I mean, that's yes, the this other. Is, this would be uh, my thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, and and 
I mean that um, like subjects inherit the or or like control themselves now. This is might lead to something like a normalization of a certain level of you know a certain level of surveillance. So we accept it, or mm -hmm. does it change our attitudes if we if everything's transparent about it? And yeah. these are thoughts that kind of you know I, trouble me. Yeah, <laughs> I I. I I like this idea of transparency that you guys, that Curtis and, and Terrell were talking about, but I also wonder if it's enough. I think, I, I'm not saying that you think that it's enough. I think you guys both see uh, problems even with uh, with the level of transparency that we might already have, and even if we had full, if that would be enough. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't have so much an argument against this as just ultimately the question of who owns that data and who has access to that data. Even if they say, yes, we have your data, I mean, maybe something like, maybe games again become a great metaphor for this because if you look at a game that, like I'm thinking of Binding of Isaac because I'm just very familiar with it, the development of that game has become such that like the final thing that, that cre the creator of that game wants to do is hand mod tools to the community and like wash his hands of the game. Like he's just kind of like in interviews, he said he's just, I think it's Edmund McMillan is the, is the one of the main creators of this game. Um, it's, it's sort of, it's this roguelike kind of game for those of you who aren't familiar with Binding of Isaac. But um, maybe in that gesture where the, the game creator really turns over the tools for operating that, that piece of, software um maybe this is maybe this is something that's something beyond transparency right he's not just mm -hmm. going to show you the sor source code he's actually going to make that source code uh changeable by someone more than just the the specialist right mod modification tools i mean are, are you know there's there's a whole range of how accessible mod tools can be of course but um to sort of especially make mod tools that are accessible, like I think Minecraft is maybe the better example, like all sorts of ways that you can download different kinds of programs that help you modify the game and, and the, you know, Minecraft building its own mod tools. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I, does that does that strike anything for you guys? What makes me think about, what that makes me think of is, you know, the, the example that you're giving in terms of the um, Binding of Isaac and handing over those tools, part of what I think is contained in there is the ways in which you would choose to mod the game suggest, I mean, it's this weird, you know, let, let me not phrase it that way. Um, it's, it, it suggests that there is something that could have been done in the original, that there is something missing, if you will. Sure. You know, the kind of way that an addition can suggest something that was missing. That's A lack. The, yeah, yeah the, the, the theoretical flourish I didn't want to do, but thank you. <laughs> um, and in that sense, I, I think that the, the part of the transparency involved in that kind of reversal of the panopticon is not simply transparency, but also a sense of accountability. Um, there's it just it comes across given everything that Foucault was saying in that in that um, book as a kind of very democratic uh, a sort of utterance a sort of you know not only do we now have the ability to see what's going on but they are feeling the same type of pressure uh, that we feel on the other end of the sort of um, the panoptic gaze uh, and absent that sort of next piece I mean the simple transparency is just kind of leaves us in that moment. Uh, in 1984, by George Orwell, okay, uh, where uh, Goldstein comes out and says, you know, power, power is the game. You mm -hmm. know, I'm torturing you because power, not right. for any noble purpose. And the simple transparency of that fact isn't liberatory <laughs> 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 at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that the 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 shit still hurts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. 
I think your point about mining is, is really interesting. I mean, it, it it makes me think about actually the just kind of the, the core of, 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 of this medium, right? And, and, and just digital culture generally, right? That and this goes back to one of Staples' ideas that, you know, all these relationships are not one directional, right? Uh, that, that there's all sorts of feedback systems, yeah. Uh, and so maybe transparency to lead to a conversation, right? Uh, and and the, the realization on both ends that, that, you know, we can kind of find a compromise somehow, yeah? We can work towards something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's maybe a way to take that a step further. Yeah. Antagonistic cooperation as such. That, I think, yeah. starts to break down the difference between designer and player to a certain degree. To a certain degree, and it speaks, you know, to, to kind of the the heart of of the yeah the, the great potential of, of of the digital, right? I mean, this sure. is this is the the foundations of, of of hacking, right? Yeah, that everything that you know, source code, open, every you know, everything for, for sharing, uh, you know, for building a community. Um, I think, yeah, I think that that kind of speaks to the the core of of. Uh, not just this meaning, but also the digital. I'm not overly convinced that this is a form of <laughs> empowering us as users or players. I think, I mean, they open up parts of games and they give you tools because they have found business models that adapt to processes. I mean, they can now use your... You know, I mean, modding is one way. I mean, I know that's just one way to see it, but modding is one way to like extend the uh, life cycle of a product. So I mean, mm-hmm. you know, with when it software opened up uh, Doom, so you could like build maps on it. That Doom's still around, even like people still build maps for the original Doom, right? So it, it extends the life cycle. It, it the modding community is a, a good labor pool. You know, they they make a lot of free work for a couple of years, and people, you know, the industry just sits back and relax and looks what they the outcome is, and they, you know, they hire the people there, and you know, so I don't want to be overly like critical of what this part is. I mean, we have a lot of technologies now available, um, which used to be in the hands of you know, a few people. Now we have technology, and we can use it, and we tinker with it, and we find ways to subvert certain hierarchical author, uh, I don't know, relationships we had, author, uh, or you know, producer-user relationships, but uh, it's not like empowering, I think. And so what I, if I'm hearing you correctly, we need, to, we need to get rid of private property, right? I mean, that's the, the problem here, right? <laughs> well, like, and, and actually to be serious, the question I would want to pose to you is, do you see the transfer of these tools, does that, it somehow and like give does that spread the means of production around enough? In in the sense, does that does that really enable a sort of? I think I, I heard the opposite of you, but continue. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I don't want to make it like an activist claim here because no, I, I mean yeah. even I mean the modders they embrace that. I mean they're very aware of this situation. They don't feel like you know. I mean they are aware of this situation and they really celebrate the stuff the industry industry does. I mean. And uh, to make a game, and, and, and Curtis, you know that, I mean, it, it, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of people, it's really expensive, and you can't do it at home alone. I mean, not a, a game like Watch Dogs. <laughs> you, no. you, right. One person couldn't do it with like the means. And um, even if you have all the technology, 
the watchdog developers have, um, but you can't do it. It's just too expensive to do, and it's a highly specialized field, and you know. Yeah, but I, I think modding, though, it, it does represent a blurring of, of lines between a, a blurring of lines between producer user. I mean, that, that this is just it's just symptomatic of a condition of this medium, right? I mean, you you could make a game though, right? I mean, mm. I, I mean, everyone can 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 learn how to code, and then you know find a team of people and and make something. And I think that's that that is empowering and. Uh, Modding, modding might be, well, okay, so it, it might be empowering, um, but we, I don't think we need to kind of, you know, judge this, this aspect of the digital. It just, that's just part of this, of, of, of this medium, right? That, that yeah, that, that line is blurred. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting here and we're recording a podcast, right? And right. We, we're not in a official radio station here, or you know, it's not. You know, it's. it's this is also a, a piece of technology we have here. We're using uh, a couple of years ago. It wasn't possible that we're doing this. And, sure. You know, put it on the internet. And what I see in your point, Pablo, is that there is something very attractive, and I think this is probably, in my opinion, what the the sort of promise of the digital humanities is in the um, academy. And I will say that without having to define what the digital humanities are. <laughs> nice. Um, and I'll do so proudly. Yeah, we, we don't have. 45 minutes we don't, more. <laughs> we don't. We don't. Nor do we have the energy for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the kind of, you know, here are the tools. Here's the source code. Let's get together and do it. We don't know how to do it, but maybe we can get together with enough people and find an answer or a solution to it. It's very promising in terms of um, a mode of collaboration, whether it be um, in academia or elsewhere, right? I mean, you know, when your example of Doom, I think, hits it on the head, you know, I'm sure somewhere somebody at Doom is looking at the first person who had to create a patch for a game that was broken on day one and is like, sucker, <laughs> you got to get a modding community to hack your stuff for you. Um, and, you know, it's, it's great that a game can come out and say, well, you know, it's broken. It's not working the way it's supposed to. Uh, but then a modding community is like, you know, we could wait for them to get to the patch, but I know how to do this. Do you know how to do this? All right, well, I'm going to do this, 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 that, and the other. You go fix this, this, and And that's beautiful. But what's not happening is no one's getting the paycheck. Yes. That's right. Yes. That's right. And yeah, yeah. as as much as we want to get rid of private property, if I, we can't get rid of all of it, yeah. then we just have a bunch of people doing a bunch of free labor and that's that's what I'm saying. That's, that that's dicey. I'm, and I, I don't want to <laughs> throw away that collaborative force, but I do want us to stop and think about because and interestingly enough, if we want to talk about Foucault and his notions of power, it, it's important to 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 for, foreground that he ended up leaving disciplinary power by the wayside um, for notions of what he would call governmentality uh, and thinking about neoliberalism in various different ways, in which I think it's very similar to what we were talking about in the sort of switch from uh, big brother to a bunch of tiny brothers, and that, you know, rather than having to enforce certain or suggest that there's a certain proper way to be a subject, there are certain strongly encouraged ways to be a subject. You're supposed to have a certain entrepreneurial spirit and that becomes replicated in several different fields. And if the kind of do-it-yourself collaborative model of you know hands-on work becomes the kind of way that we get things done, that, leave, that, that takes out the kind of questions of transparency and accountability that we're really sort of thinking about. So there's a way in which those things can can become intentional. I think that, yeah, you know, your 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 hesitation 
is not lost on me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it is on any of us. I think that's that's a really good point. Yeah, and we can't really, I mean, we can't really decide if it is this and that. I mean, you would have to look at the processes that's happening. And then (laughs) if you would say, like, maybe it is empowering. Of course, it is empowering Mm -hmm. to have all these technologies and to to be able to do all this is it subversive well maybe it can be and you know some practices are some are not modding is can be i mean there's there a couple mods out you would say like that you know the developers don't agree with what's modded into sure. these games and yeah. these are all the shiny examples all the scholars always you know uh, pull out of the head, <laughs> but but is it like a, a ho- is it a system changer or something? No, yeah, no, yeah, probably not. Yeah, so I think that's okay. Um, <laughs> and it's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I, no, I think it's I think it's okay that we that we what I should uh, that we leave with that tension mm-hmm. sort of unresolved. Yeah, I think that's, I think yeah. that's that's important. sure okay. Um, so we could quickly talk about our conference title, um, and again, our conference was titled "Aesthetics of Surveillance." Um, and we wanted to sort of maybe tease out a little bit of how we see, I mean, we could think broadly about a constellation of both aesthetics, surveillance, and video games, and how these things sort of intersect with each other and, and otherwise. So what do you guys think about that? I mean, how do you see these three terms sort of intersecting with each other? Pop three up. terms? Aesthetics, surveillance, oh, aesthetics and games? And, and video games. Yeah, I mean... Or two. I mean, you don't have to use all three. You must use all three. Aesthetics, all games, and surveillance are the three terms. Correct? Yeah, basically. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, uh, Curtis, you, you mentioned the three levels of surveillance. Right. Games Illustrate, and I mean, yeah, I guess they they all have like uh, they all share some some aesthetic. Um, so you have. Uh, I don't know. You have the the representational level, I guess. That's the the probably most obviously aesthetic thing yeah. <laughs> part yeah. in the game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Represent I mean this is the way aesthetics is defined in in most media for most of bourgeois society and, and sure. you know, since, you know, even before that maybe, right? So you can talk about like how a certain aesthetic of surveillance is mediated through these games, through the representational level, and then you know you have to mention the drones. So you have drone cameras, you have camera switches, and you could like analyze these uh, parts of the game. De- I guess definitely. Uh, and so and that, that, that would be one, time, one point. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in a game like Watch Dogs, I mean, I was I was looking at the way uh, that camera manipulation works in this game. Um, and it, it, it just led me to think about how camera manipulation is important for so many games. Um, you know, you have to learn to kind of place this camera in a, in a you have to, I guess, become a kind of amateur filmmaker, right? You're constantly m- manipulating a camera when you're in a 3D platformer. And this is something we talked about the other day. I mean, this with Mario 64, Kind of introducing this 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 camera that you have to work with, and by doing so, they uh, or and in doing so, they bring in a second avatar, so to speak, with Lakito, the little turtle sitting on the on the on the cloud, who's actually an enemy, often of uh, Mario. Right, he's trying to kill Mario, and now he's going to film him right mm-hmm. through this entire game experience constantly. And so you're kind of working with two avatars. The second being the camera, right? Um, and this is a way to, I think. I guess my, my maybe my argument here is, as condition of, as surveillance is a condition of the medium, right? That does does this kind of bleed over into the way we actually interact with this medium and how this medium works? I mean, 
camera manipulation is is not just you know a part of Watch Dogs. It's a part of so many games, uh, hmm. and I think manipulating a camera in relation to an avatar body. I mean, this this is kind of an ongoing, constant act of surveillance yeah. or maybe attentive watchfulness, right? Sure. Um, so I th- that, that was one point I wanted to kind of yeah. uh, play with, uh, with uh, looking at how watchdogs, by thematically addressing surveillance, brings us to think about, well, how do we do surveillance in games? And not just in watchdogs, but, you know, it, Mario 64, I mean, yeah. anything with, with, with camera manipulation. Well, I guess it, the, the beauty of watchdogs... Um, in this case, is is exactly the switch between this first-person perspective and the the Apollonian view from above, like this god-like view you have, and and, and detached from this avatar, um, which you have in many games, but not within, not not on a on a diegetic um, uh, level within this uh, surveillance apparatus, you know, in Watch Dogs and in other games, it's the switch between the map. And the first person, and you have constantly like to like switch between this uh, uh, this first person view and the the map to you know in order to find your way and stuff like that. And then, so. right. I mean, we're constantly kind of struggling with or, or negotiating mm. so so many levels of mediation. I mean, mm. that's that is playing video games, right? You you're constantly dealing with layers of mediation embedded. Uh, you know, and just think about you know with Watchdogs, you. How many times you leave your avatar? I mean, first of all, player to avatar, right? Marcus Holloway in Watch Dogs 2, and then avatar to camera, to, mm. to second camera, to third. And sometimes you forget where you are in relation to, to your actual, uh, you know, to, to that first layer of mediation, you yeah. know? Uh, and that Watch Dogs kind of plays with this and makes yeah. you think, what am I doing when I'm playing a game? I'm, I'm manipulating a camera, I'm moving through a space. And what, what is the designer doing, right? Mm. The designers also using cameras, right? <laughs> Perspectives moving through to, to kind of build this this very, you know, embodied and tactile experience. Um, and, and this is, you know, where Benjamin comes in again. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no apologies <laughs> for Benjamin in this room. I mean, if Foucault gets that much airtime, Benjamin gets at least should get at least as much. <laughs> yeah, and he 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 he'll, he'll speak to points about um, kind of the the tactile process of of visual sti- stimuli, right? Uh, and I think this comes together really well in video games. You know, Benjamin, in his work of art essay, brings uh, the cinema and architecture kind of side by side. And when people talk about what games are, especially, of course, 3D games, uh, this is often, you know, the, these are the kind of the two, two media that are kind of brought together and say, oh, yeah, uh, it's kind of like cinematic architecture or, you know, and they kind of throwing back to, to just to understand what this new medium is doing. But looking at other more established media, uh, these two are brought together. And Benjamin, Benjamin brought these before, obviously long before games were created. He, he saw this kind of connection and that we both kind of, in an embodied, tactile way, interact with these two media. And I think uh, games kind of realize that uh, or, or kind of, yeah, re- redeem that, that, that wonderful connection that he, that he makes in uh, 1936. Right, right? yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the point, uh, Pablo, I think you were making about um, the diegetic and the non-diegetic, um, thinking about the camera and the sort of modes and the levels of information, and just uh, thinking about the difference between a game where the map is on the screen and you just sort of take for granted that, oh, you're navigating 3D space, you might need a map, and then <laughs> thinking about something like what Metal Gear Solid did, and they called it, oh, this is the Soliton Radar. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> and, you know, when you or get caught, they could have the ability to jam your radar and this, 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 that. But the, the way they kind of brought in the sort of tool of surveillance into the sort of fold, and even thinking about the Super Mario Brothers and the kind of turtle sitting on the cloud doing the surveillance. Uh, but then what would it be to have the camera, if we can call it a camera, of someone being uh, in Unity, seeing the kind of player camera, seeing the camera of the turtle, and then seeing the camera of the person who's putting all those things in the game world, right? <laughs> Having access to that camera of sorts. Um, and part of the kind of, I think, aesthetic is to make sure that those things are somewhat concealed, uh, unless you're trying to sort of fix a sort of tinker of sorts. But what would it be to, to not be a tinkerer, but to be a player? and have control of those sort of things. So I think that there are a handful of games that have started to fool around with that. But. Absolutely. And <laughs> Watch Dogs 2 seems to be a really great example of that. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it kind yeah. of pushes, that, yeah. pushes us in uh, that direction. See, and uh, we don't do a review here of these two games, <laughs> we, Orwell and Watch Dogs, but I mean, it seems to be like Watch Dogs is doing a lot of things right and teaching us a lot how surveillance can function on different levels or not teaching us, but showing us and letting us, you know, on, uh, on the level of experience. While kind of uh, Orville gets stuck here. I mean, it, yeah. it has a good narration about it, but gameplay-wise, like what you do is just you click and you you drag and pull stuff over. You know, you collect stuff. I mean, that's not like really re innovative in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, gameplay-wise, it doesn't disturb you or doesn't you know, lead to reflect you of what you're doing. And I think that's the problem of some serious games that are out there. Sure, I mean, yeah, I think that's think a fair a, critique. This War of Mine, I mean, it's a, it's a great uh, resource management game. You can just play it without ever thinking about what it would be to be in a civil war or whatever. You know, just, you can play it just as just a fine. game. Yeah. As a game. Yeah. So, uh, in defense of Orwell, though, uh, I, I think I think this 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 very kind of simple mechanic and and that so much agency a player agency is taken away is actually quite brilliant. Um, it, it's it's a it's a constant uh, struggle for the player, as, as you said, to assert any kind of agency here to, to, to move the narrative in different directions. Uh, um, and that's, that's you know, the, the, the messy human trying to fit into the systematic surveillance network, right? Mm. It, it just, it, it can't happen. And I think uh, that's why surveillance and watchdogs too in, a, in an open world environment doesn't really work. You know, it's, it becomes attentive watching it becomes kind of it becomes digital flannery right uh, the just the extended gaze of of of, of you and your avatar right um, but it's not a, a, a systematic gaze and it's certainly not um, the, the it's certain yeah it doesn't speak to any sort of agency uh, in, in Orwell that that you might kind of flex uh, you know beyond like the space of this this as, as you said earlier this kind of borderless or or kind of beyond or like absent interface, right? You're, you're yeah, the, just the, always there. There's no outside to this interface, right? right? If there's nothing, there's no way to be beyond it. Right. This is, yeah, and I, I, I want to offer a, a reading of of Orwell actually, which I had been thinking of while I was writing as like the nihilistic version of it, which is that like the game basically says, yeah, basically in order to get people to understand uh, surveillance, they have to understand it firsthand, and this is a game and we're aware of that and we can't give that to you either. And I think there's a way that this reading uh, actually is maybe stronger because the game is so so limiting. Like the way I pitched it in my paper is that the player never has the freedom to sort of act in the way that they'd like to. 
maybe the way we think about Orwell is as the starting point, starting experience of being totally bound in a system of, I think I, I had this written at one point that like real surveillance people who are really operating these programs do not have flexibility in what they choose to upload, right? Hmm. Insofar as any human ever gets involved in the collection of data or in the analysis of it, the act taking action on it, they have a they have a you know very they have systems both technological and sort of like procedural like sort of procedures of how they should operate that very much restrict the kinds of decisions they can make. Um, and maybe maybe the more charitable way to talk about Orwell is to say, you know what it does offer you? That feeling of being boxed in. Hmm. And that's not good. It's, they're not claiming it's good. They're not claiming that this is the way things should be. But this is the starting point for you to understand uh, what it would be, what, what you're up against. Like what, what, those, what those people, what kind of cultural technique, what kind of technique, what practice this is that is pervasive in our society. And you... You experience the boundedness in that sort of system. This is this may be a bit of a stretch. Okay. Um, but thinking to aesthetics and the questions of um, a topic that a uh, number of scholars have thought about, the aesthetics of play. Uh, and one of those aesthetics is a concept that is coming to game design to a certain degree called flow, uh, coming from a book written by Mihai Csikszent Mihai. Um, uh, in Flow loosely kind of summarized as kind of a being in the zone, of being in a sort of a space of optimal performance psychologically, um, where you're challenged just enough, uh, but also challenge. Uh, it's not too difficult. Uh, that kind of nice, um, you know, sweet spot, and you're kind of at this level of sort of doing these things and uh, operating at this kind of high level. Uh, and there's a game game critic by the name of Lana. Polanyi, I want to say, might be might be butchering her name there, uh, who critiques flow for the precise idea that when you're sort of at that perspective and when you're sort of performing, whether it be in Super Mario Brothers um, or any particular game, Tetris, for example, yes, you're performing well and you're ex you're exercise you're executing at the the level that you need to be, but there's something that's going missing, which is the ability for expression, the ability for feeling. Uh, the feeling for uh, something other than just getting it right and winning. And I think that to a certain degree, maybe what's going on here is um, you are, um, what you're pointing out with um, Orwell is that it's giving you that sense, but in a different way. That perhaps that experience of flow and that experience of that sort of being confined to the precise mechanics yeah. is not obvious in the other games that we play. Yeah. But precisely because there's an alternative perspective, which is the narrative, sure. um, Orwell's beginning to sort of communicate the ways in which that's so confining or gives you a sense in which, okay, huh, this is what we're sort of locked into, but there are things right. that go beyond that. And maybe, or it's just the frustration. Just that frustration you feel is the thing that cues you into the fact of how rigid the system is, right? And again, this is this this might still fall to my original critique, which is that like the habit the practice, the action that you take is still, even if you realize how fully closed you are, and this brings us back to our transparency discussion, even if the frustration makes you realize the boundedness of yourself in the system, it doesn't allow you to resist it in any way. So then that goes back to my my original sort of thesis with my paper. But yeah, I think I think maybe 
maybe there's another there's another way to approach it, and it's sort of somewhere somewhere there. Well, even though I appreciate that you destroyed my argument that <laughs> watchdogs <laughs> is a better take on surveillance than Orwell. Because, I mean, what came out of it was quite interesting, the discussion. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe we were mixing. I mean, we talked about the aesthetics and I talked about the visual and the look. So maybe we mixed up or I don't know. We talked about like gameplay and maybe it's kind of uh, hard to get these things together. Is it I, th like the I, think, I think that's definitely true. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, you have all these different visual layers of... Um, a look of like uh, uh, surveillance cameras and drones, and I think that's really rich, um, a rich experience of different, um, you know, visual data collection devices or something like that. If you want to put it in there, and in Orwell you have like this, you know, Facebook interface type of thing, which is kind of stripped down to, to some uh, some social some some idea of a social network or something, some abstract idea of a social network. So this was what I was talking about. <laughs> I'm sorry, then, Pablo. No, we, no, we that's went, okay. We went elsewhere, but uh, I think I just wrote, I think I just rewrote one of the last paragraphs of my paper <laughs> for the next time I present it. So um, I'm going to just go ahead and figure out when that timestamp is and go back to that and just maybe write some stuff down. Well, and, and just to be clear, you know, with the representation of surveillance in, in watchdogs, I think is, it, the, the line is blurred when, when you're actually, you know, you're, you're seeing these closed circuit cameras and you're, hacking them, but you're, you're also doing surveillance at that point, and, and, and you're manipulating a camera constantly just to navigate the game space. I mean, forget the, you know, the hacking these cameras, but just you're constantly fixed on a body, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the central mechanic, not just to watchdogs, but to so many games. And so this attentive watchfulness at the core of this mechanic and so much of gaming, I think that that's where, that's where it, it, we, it, this kind of discussion between the visual cues in uh, Watch Dogs and actually the way you encounter this game and, and, and make this game come to life by enacting, by working with it, um, the, the, the line there is, is, I mean, it's, it's blurred, right? I think that's the perfect way to sum up and, and sort of bring our discussion to a close. Um, at this point, we would, uh, we would normally do a little segment we like to call, which I didn't tell you about, What's in Your System? <laughs> And this is just uh, where we briefly discuss or mention like what we're playing, what we're reading or, or listening to or thinking about in terms of video games. So uh, yeah, does anyone want to kick us off? I can, I can start and just say that I've just been, well, I was playing a little bit of Orwell, but I've just been playing it more Overwatch. And I have, I have come around since last episode and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to like play it and enjoy it. And I actually got to a point where I was all, like, I'm starting to get a little tired of it, so I'm looking at other games, and hopefully I'll be playing Breath of the Wild soon if someone lets me borrow their Switch. He's talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> and now the whole world knows that I own a Switch. Uh, did thank I just, you, like, Derek. dox you a little bit? <laughs> yeah, you totally did. Oh, no. You totally did. All right, well, Terrell lives on the moon, so if you guys go mm -hmm. ahead and just <laughs> blast off and go up there. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm looking I'm looking forward to playing that whenever I get a chance, and then also I just I'm still playing some Overwatch. Terrell, what's in your system? So um, nod to Overwatch, uh, just because I think I need to start playing that soon, uh, just yeah. to get a sense for the asymmetric play uh, between the characters. Uh, what's in my system, and it's the reason why I'm not playing Breath of the Wild as much as I should be, uh, <laughs> is because I started playing Horizon Zero Dawn, which came out slightly before Breath of the Wild did. 
Uh, and I'm thinking about that a lot just based off our conversation we just had here with it being an open world game um, and wondering about the kind of experience it gives about a main uh, character kind of finding themselves uh, in a lot of ways. And you're in a world where you must find not only yourself, but a lot of other things, uh, too. <laughs> and one thing in particular that I'm thinking about is, and this is a thing that comes over in a lot of video games, is there are moments where you kind of stumble into a new town. Uh, and there are a bunch of you know, places where there's kind of a militia of sorts and they're kind of keeping a bunch of resources. And you can waltz right in and just start to pick up some goods and say, oh, <laughs> wow, this is a fancy new bow. I guess I have it now. And I'm wondering <laughs> if they're going to pull a kind of chrono trigger move where it's like, by the way, remember when you took a bunch of our stuff? We're going to hold you accountable for that. <laughs> the ways in which that that's always kind of a thing that we kind of take for granted. It's like, oh, yeah, you find a bunch of chests in somebody's house. Just take it. Well, what if you did that in real life? Or what if the game's <laughs> keeping track of, did you take that chest and it's going to uh -huh. hold you accountable for it later? I mean, obviously it keeps a track of it and that you can't go back and use the chest twice. Uh, but what if there were some more punitive consequences for just taking people's stuff? <laughs> like real life. Yeah. So don't come and take my Switch, by the way. <laughs> Excellent tying together. And I, I got to give a shout out to my to my colleague, Bandima, who worked on Zero uh, Horizon Dawn. So, Which wow. is... Um, and he would, the way he would refer to this was a project he was working on. And it was <laughs> Just, uh, he's, he's such a cool guy, and, yeah. and it's, it's so modest. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to, to, to mention oh, yeah, that. Um, definitely. What I'm, what, what's what, in your system? Yeah. Um, obviously, Watch Dogs too. Uh, yeah. But I, to address the, or to kind of explore the theme of surveillance, I also went back to Manhunt, which is really oh, interesting for okay. surveillance, uh, in, in a way to kind of build suspense uh, by the use of uh, close uh, close circuit TV. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's such a dark game. I remember playing yeah. that game as as a as a teenager, uh -huh. and uh, I, I'm going back to it. I'm like, what? Wow, I played this. I, I, <laughs> yeah, at, at you know, 13 or something, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, this this is a brutal game. But anyways, it's very interesting uh, interesting for surveillance, I think, and uh, gaming. And I'm reading the Gameful World, which is definitely okay. worth uh, checking out. Uh, there's an article in it by uh, the scholar I mentioned earlier, earlier Jennifer R. Woodson, um, and she writes on. Actually, the title of the article is Foucault's Fitbit, and uh, I think it'll be really <laughs> oh, interesting wow. for, oh, for, for everyone here. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm a yeah. big fan of uh, what she's doing. Cool. Um, and I'm also to kind of tie into to go back to Watch Dogs. I'm wa watching Mr. Robot, and oh, it's a kind okay. of a fun way to, to to you know look at these kind of mainstream, uh, yeah, depictions of of hacking and surveillance. Yeah. Cool. That's what's in my system. Nice, Pablo. What's in your <laughs> system? Well, yeah, I. I I did have to play Pokemon Go for this talk. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was in my system, and it uh, really annoyed me. I, I, I was I, right when it came out. I did play it because everybody did, and I wanted sure. to see how it looks. And of course, the first Pokemon sits there in your office, and it's fun, and you, you go out. And well, it pretty much. I mean, I don't know how it is here, but in Cologne, you hardly see any people walking around anymore and playing yeah, it. It's I think. Much over. So maybe it's over, Kinda, right? yeah. is it? Yeah. Definitely not so I felt US. kind of really odd taking my cell phone out again, <laughs> like last week, and walking around and playing it again. Yeah. Everyone's like, don't you know it's done? We're not doing that anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, but I had to do it to get the data out, basically. Fair. Fair. What else? Um, I don't know. I, I, ha I don't have a game right now, really, I'm addicted to. I played a little Sunless Sea. Okay. It, it was really relaxing. <laughs> But Good. I didn't really get the point after a while. I mean, a, a couple of hours, I just collected these stories. And, you know, it was really like it, it sucked me in with the whole aesthetics, I guess. Sure. Um, but then it got 
kind of got boring, so that's okay. I left it aside. Okay. I, I constantly play uh, Far Cry, uh, Far Cry Three, Far Cry mm. Four, and Far Cry Primal because I'm I'm working on um, on the representation of animals in games and and nature. That's uh, another pet project of mine. Um, oh, <laughs> see what you did there. Uh, <laughs> so that's another project of mine. Um, yeah. Mm. Terrell's not happy about that no, one. No, I mean, honestly, what I'm thinking about is how Far Cry Primal and the ability to sort of tame pets in that one is not too different than Horizon Zero Dawn's ability to sort of hack uh, the sort of robot machines. Mm. And, huh, because it, it, a lot of people compared the two, um, Far Cry and Horizon Zero Dawn, and thinking about Primal as an interesting sort of bridge of sorts between them. I had not thought about that before until you mentioned okay. it. Okay. So... Something else for you to take a look at because you've got lots of free time for checking out new games. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah, always. Yeah, yeah always. <laughs> With Far Cry 4, I, I, I want to mention that there's actually a representation of Tibetan praying wheels. Oh, my gosh. In the game. And okay. if, you, if you spin all of them right, you unlock some kind of oh, achievement. But okay. we should probably give a shout-out to, to two of our conference guests. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dr. Justin Jock, I think. Uh, yeah, I think And so. uh, Paul... Uh, Bashirs and, and their project uh, that involves the kind of digital um, enactment of this of this yeah. Tibetan uh, praying well. I mean, we uh, you know maybe we put a link to, to their projects. Yeah. So that you're. I mean, the short things. version is basically there. They know that that surveil- the NSA is carrying out massive surveillance, and so therefore their goal is to take these prayers and put them on the spinning disks of the hard drives in these data wow. factory in these data uh, data centers, and that. Because they are spinning, just like the prayer wheels, that prayer is being released <laughs> out into the world, and it's such a, it's such a like hopeful and redemptive gesture. Yeah. It was just a really nice way to end They're the conference. Playing surveillance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they are right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Then this is a, another totally different way of playing surveillance. But um, yeah, yeah, you can sign up, and uh, for you get an email with a prayer every week. Yeah. And then this, and then is, you, you know, know they assume that the NSA is catching him, Just and so vacuuming there on the spinning. Yes, that's yeah, fantastic. On the spinning disc. I okay. hate to be a bummer, but oh. what if there was solid state? I <laughs> that was <laughs> that was literally the thing that I said, and then also Ted Dawson. Shout out to Ted Dawson was like, "You stole my comment. I was going to say that." That's <laughs> uh, such a jerk reply. I can't believe you actually said that. I, there, was I, a, there was a good answer though, right? I yeah, mean, the, 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 yeah. There was still just motion would set these these wheels uh, any sort of. Yeah, transfer of technology. We kind of, yeah, like wind it's blows. About, in the, I thought in it's the about spinning wheels. So. Yeah, but, oh well. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, anyway. I was trying to save the project. Man. Electronic Sorry. circuits, you know, feedback in a loop, you know. <laughs> there you go. Something there. Anyway, that's going to do it for us. Um, thank you guys for listening. This has been really fantastic to have both Curtis and Pablo here uh, for for, a, for an episode. It was really great to have you guys for the conference as well. And it was thanks just for having fun. Us. Uh, yeah, thanks working with you guys. Um, I don't have my ending notes, so I'm going to have to make it up on the spot. So, But basically, uh, if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can get uh, get us check us out at Twitter, um, which is at Scholars at Play. And if you want to check it, uh, I'll let you guys decide if you want to give out, you know, Twitter or emails or whatever. Uh, but if you want to send us an email, you can send us an email at Scholars at Play podcast at gmail.com. Nailed it. I got it. It's yeah, I had to add the podcast at the end. Um, send us an email if you've got some thoughts, any reflections, things we missed, things you want to contribute to the discussion. We'd love to we'd love to hear from you. Um, Terrell, where can people find you online? They can find me at uh, Black Socrates on Twitter. 
Uh, and keep an eye on the Facebook page uh, and our Twitter account because I will be blogging on some of our um, past episodes. So Awesome. Yeah. yeah um, Curtis, uh, where can people find you? Uh, they, they can email me at my Cologne Game Lab uh, address, which is cm at cologuegamelab.de. Um, if you want to talk about games or about the Game Lab, I'm happy to, to tell people about the uh, program we have there. Yeah, cool. And Pablo? Oh, people can email me on my uh, address uh, at the University of Siegen, the graduate school locating media, and the address is uh, my first name dot my last name at uni-siegen.de. That's great. We might okay. put that in the comment section, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we always do that for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, we'll be back. We've got another episode that's sort of brewing in the works, a live episode that Terrell and Kyle did. So if you're missing Kyle's voice, you're going to get some too. Don't you worry. Um, That's going to do it for us. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Take it easy. See ya. See ya.